Good morning to each of you. Please return with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Again, that's the book of Romans, chapter 13. Uh, it has been said that man, as a sinner, hates God, hates his fellow man, and hates himself. He would kill God if he could. He does kill his fellow man when he can, and he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. I believe that is the testimony of Scripture. It's why I am exceedingly glad this morning that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, this morning, early this morning, I was reflecting on the stanza, one stanza from that great hymn, you know it. It goes as follows, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the good news that God rescues sinners from his wrath, saves them for his glory through the substitutionary sacrifice of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercies, please hear this, if you still find yourself outside of Christ this day. God's mercies abound toward the most sinful, rebellious, antagonistic, depraved individual who repents of his sin, her sin, and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Uh, there is, you know the verse, there is no other name given among men, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is impossible, absolutely impossible, to believe that gospel and remain the same person. Many claim that very thing, but I affirm this morning from this pulpit in this place, it is impossible to believe the gospel and remain the same person. The gospel is transformative by its very nature. The gospel gets a hold of a man. The gospel gets a hold of a woman. The good news that God saves sinners in Christ is so compelling that it is, by very definition, transformative. That is essentially Paul's point, beginning in the 12th chapter of his epistle to the Romans, Verse 1, right through to the 15th chapter, verse 13. He is demonstrating the transformative effects, results of the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In our text, our specific text in chapter 13, of all things, Paul is showing the transformative effects of this gospel in relation to our attitude and approach toward the governing authorities. Let's read it again together. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Please follow along. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. By way of review from last Lord's Day, there is a command right at the outset, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is, secondly, reasons as to why we are to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. To be specific, Paul gives two in verses 1 through 4. The first is this, it is right. That's it. Every human authority is appointed by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So there's the first reason it is right. The second reason is this, it is wise. The human government has, yes, a divine stamp of approval. It has been instituted by God for one very specific purpose. What? To punish evil and to reward good. On that principle, governing principle established way back in Genesis 9, after the flood, namely the sanctity of human life. All government is to stand on that foundation for the good of human society. And it is called by divine appointment to punish evil and to reward good. Therefore, it is wise on our part to subject, to submit ourselves to divine, to human authority. And then the third thing we see in these verses are the the examples. Paul gives us four specific examples. There they are in verse 7. We're to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, that is customs, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed, that is respect of their laws, I think primarily. And honor, respect toward their persons, to whom honor is owed. There you have it. Romans 13, 1 through 7. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, it is a key text, key text for understanding the history of this nation and how the church Christians have interacted with this at pivotal moments in this nation's history. And it is undoubtedly a controversial text. Not so much the interpretation as I've just given it to you, but uh, how are we to apply this in the 21st century? Oh, I so want to move on to verse 8. I really do. But I think we need to camp out here this Lord's Day, and I think we need to do so for good reason. Um, Pastorally, I'm concerned for us at Grace Community Church. It's my only concern, really. Concerned for us at Grace Community Church. I'm concerned... It being 2016, State of the Union just delivered debates, full bloom and blossom, and uh, an election just around the corner, and uh, concerned for us, Christians, believers here, 
at Grace Community Church and what to make of it all. On one extreme, I guess at the lower end, I'm somewhat concerned because of the confusion, potential confusion, and, uh, and frustration. A lot of confusion when it comes to politics and the intersect between faith and politics, and a lot of frustration when it comes to the condition of this country and the state of the political spectrum in, uh, in general. So I have some concern for those reasons. To the other extreme, I'm concerned because of the growing polarization and potential radicalization, even in this country. I'm concerned about it. I, I, I'm really concerned. I, I'm not. Let me just hedge myself, put it out there right now. I am not, I am not the least bit interested in answering every question or resolving every issue of a political nature. Not the least bit interested. Nor am I the least bit interested in mobilizing here, us here at Grace Community Church for some sort of political engagement. Doesn't interest me in the least. Uh, here's my chief interest. My concern is that we as Christians are glorifying God even in our political engagement. That's my concern. Our mission statement as a church is to equip God's people to do what? To delight in God's glory and declare God's glory to the nations. I believe that should govern us even as we engage and involve ourselves in the sphere of the political. Are you with me? That's my concern. It's really my only interest today and moving forward that in 2016, we as individuals, we as a church, conduct ourselves, are clear in our understanding when it comes to politics and our engagement in politics to such a degree that our delight in God is the governing principle. Our desire to see God glorified, our desire to see God honored, our desire to see God magnified, our desire, you think of it in the context of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. How does that shape us? when it comes to navigating very, very, very troubled waters known as U.S. politics. I want to give us seven words of encouragement. And again, I hope I've made myself clear at the outset as to what I'm not the least bit interested in doing and what it is I am doing, what it is my concern. I want us to fulfill our mission statement in relation to politics. And so here are seven words of encouragement, things I've been working through for years, I will work through tomorrow and the day after, and I want to put them out there as we seek to glorify God by delighting in Him. Here's word of encouragement number one. I encourage us to think biblically. I encourage us to think biblically. It is fascinating to me. It's downright telling to me that the Apostle Paul, in his body of writing as found in the New Testament, never offers any political commentary. That is interesting to me. The Apostle Paul lives in the middle of the Roman Empire the most powerful empire that the world had seen 
to that point in human history, and he never says anything about it. He is surrounded by political intrigue, social upheaval, international turmoil, class conflict, religious controversy, any of the headlines today, you could put them back in that context. It was the same thing. Yet Paul never says anything. He never comments, not even once, on current events. Even in a text which might have lent itself to some sort of comment regarding the emperor or engaging the powers that be, um, nothing, silence. Now, here's what I want us to get. How radically different from the church today. How radically different from the church today. I think we can only explain the difference as follows. For Paul, there, and please hear me carefully. For Paul, there is no correlation between the advancement of God's kingdom and the advancement of an earthly kingdom. There is absolutely no correlation in the mind, the view, the perspective of the Apostle Paul between the advancement of the kingdom of God and the advancement of some earthly kingdom. For Paul, there is no correlation between the furtherance of God's kingdom and the furtherance of any particular political agenda. He just does not think like that. Sadly, we do. Paul is far more concerned about our personal humility than our civil liberty. He is far more concerned about our unmortified sins than our inalienable rights. He sees human pride as a greater threat than political injustice. He sees the transforming effects of the gospel as more significant than the apparatus of politics. He sees Christ ruling by his word and spirit as far more powerful than any earthly leader, party, or country. Here's what I want us to get, the words of another preacher who writes for many evangelicals. And please understand, I'm speaking of balance. I am not suggesting for one moment we should not engage in politics. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for one moment a Christian shouldn't run for office. I'm not suggesting for one moment that we shouldn't bring biblical worldview into the public sphere. No, no, no. You've misunderstood me if that's where you think I'm going. It's a question of balance. It's a question of focus. For many evangelicals, sadly, political strategy has become the focus of everything. As if the spiritual fortunes of God's people rise or fall, depending on who's in office. Did you hear that? For many evangelicals, political strategy has become the focus of everything. As if the spiritual fortunes of God's people rise or fall, depending on who's in office. But the truth is that no human government can ultimately do anything either to advance or to thwart the kingdom of God. We need much clearer thinking in that regard in our day. And understanding this simple truth, there is no correlation between the advancement of the kingdom of God 
and the advancement of any earthly kingdom. Oh, the need for clear biblical thinking in that regard. If we are going to delight in God's glory and declare his glory to the nations. Second word of encouragement is this. I encourage us to engage meaningfully. I encourage us to engage meaningfully. Many, many people, most people, vast majority of people, I don't know, that might be an exaggeration, but certainly most, think this country's present condition is the result of a political problem. Most people think this country's present condition is the result of a political problem. If the problem is political, therefore the solution is political. And far too many evangelicals are thinking like that. For the past four decades, many well-meaning, and I'm not questioning motives, for the past four decades, many well-meaning evangelicals have established a myriad of activist organizations and contributed millions, if not billions, in an effort to use the apparatus of politics, lobbying, legislating, demonstrating, boycotting, intimidating, demonizing, to win back America. What has been the result? Have things gotten better? What has been the result? Again, I'm not throwing all that aside and saying we should not engage in that sphere. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we're simply to hide our, head, hide our heads in the sand. I'm not insinuating that we are to disengage. I'm not suggesting for one moment we're to develop some sort of, well, let things happen as they happen, sort of carefree and careless attitude. For me, it is a question of perspective. It is a question of balance. The only result I see, really, of what has transpired the last four decades within evangelicalism is this. It has resulted in the politicization of the gospel. The gospel has become political. The politicization of the gospel and an inability to divorce the gospel from politics. Where politics actually is what drives people's understanding of the gospel. And political engagement actually becomes the end that is view in, viewed in the so-called proclamation of the gospel. No, we need to engage far more meaningfully. And here's the foundation from which we must build, the foundation from which we must get involved. Only the biblical gospel rescues people from sin, death, and hell. Only the biblical gospel lifts people out of the muck and the mire. Only the biblical gospel transforms people. Only the biblical gospel alters the course of entire societies as Christians. Our chief end, not our only end, but our chief end and our chief calling is to preach biblically, and to live meaningfully. If we want to change the course of events, 
If we want to have a lasting effect, Christ himself has told us how. It involves salt and it involves light. It involves proclaiming faithfully and it involves living faithfully. It involves proclaiming, articulating a biblical gospel and it involves living out that biblical gospel in every identifiable sphere of life. We are to engage meaningfully. The third encouraging word I want to give you is this. I encourage us to listen carefully. Listen very, very carefully. A narrative has captured our minds. Our, a narrative has captured our minds. And the narrative goes like this. There was a time when this country enjoyed something close to a utopian state. And it has been downhill ever since. That's the narrative. That is the narrative that has captured our minds. No one ever defines when that utopian state was. American Revolution, engagement with the native peoples of this land, Civil War when 2.5% of the population died, uh, the age of slavery in the South when a black man and a black woman couldn't marry because they didn't want to have to identify their children as legal entities so that they could sell them as individual units. When were these halcyon days? When was this utopian state? And yet that is the de facto position in people's mind. No one ever identifies it. No one ever actually says that's when it was. And yet it is a given in our thinking that there was a time when we were close to a utopian state and it has just been like this ever since. You've heard me say it before. I think what compounds the problem is this. And I include myself in it. We think Mayberry was a real place. The Bradys were a real family. And the Beaver was a real boy. And it's been downhill ever since. Here's something we must grasp in this country. We, we must, we must grasp this today, right now. Middle class Americans, most of us in this room, live better than 99.5% of all the people who have ever lived. All right? The narrative is false. It's a false narrative. And yet it is just assumed today. This false narrative leads to a spirit of negativity, an attitude of just settled disgruntlement. You take that spirit of negativity and disgruntlement and you throw two other ingredients into the mix and what we are left with is a perfect storm. Here are the two other ingredients that get thrown in. The first is the conspiratorial mindset. The conspiratorial mindset. I'm referring to those who live in a state of self-induced paranoia, an irrational fear of the hidden hand. Someone somewhere at some time is coming to get me and take my guns, right? You just have, it's just so prevalent. A conspiratorial mindset. The second ingredient is this, an apocalyptic mindset. I'm referring to those who handle prophetic biblical texts as if they were a crystal ball through which they can ascertain the significance of current events. 
You take those three, that spirit of negativity or disgruntlement, you add to it the conspiratorial mindset, you add to it the apocalyptic mindset, and we are left with a perfect storm, which uh, sadly is where many people find themselves today. I heard this recently, not so long ago, a well-known preacher, he, um, he uttered these words, if Hillary Clinton is elected as president, it will pave the way for the Antichrist. But praise God, that will mean the rapture is coming. All right, did you, are you following? I had a hard time following, but I think I got it now. If Hillary Clinton is elected as president, it will pave the way for the Antichrist. But praise God, that will mean the rapture is coming. In the very next breath, he added, and so God's people need to get out there and make sure they vote in order to take back America. Now, hold on a second. If me voting for Hillary Clinton ensures the coming again of the Lord Jesus, why would I want to take back America? I'm going out to vote for Hillary. <laughs> and yet the people in the, thunderous applause when they heard this nonsense, drivel. Makes no sense at all. And yet that is exactly the climate of evangelical politics today and where we find ourselves. These three have converged and they've produced something I think is actually quite ugly and a twisted manifestation of the Christian faith. A spirit of disgruntlement, sort of this conspiratorial mindset and an apocalyptic mindset is, is to such a great, that's gospel truth, what I just said to you for many people today. That's gospel truth. Those words I just uttered. To question the biblical legitimacy of this gospel truth, for many, is akin to the unpardonable sin. Here's what we must understand as Christians, if we want to glorify God in this age. Many of our politicians are praying on that very distorted misrepresentation of the Christian faith. We need to listen carefully to what's being said because they're praying on it, so many of them. And so many of us flocking without thinking these things through and understanding exactly what is being said and exactly what is being offered. Oh, the need to listen carefully. Fourth word of encouragement I want to give us as we are determined to delight in God, declare his glory to the nations. Again, our motivation, our desire. Again, let me repeat it. It's not to solve every problem. I'm not interested in giving you an answer to every issue. I can't resolve all the complexities. I openly acknowledge that. It's not really my chief concern. My chief concern is this, that in the midst of the confusion and the frustration and the growing polarization and radicalization, that we're glorifying God as Christians, that that's our chief motivation. We want God to be honored However we engage, whatever means when it comes to political engagement. So I encourage us to think biblically, to engage meaningfully, to listen carefully. And I encourage us, fourthly, to think historically. We need to think historically. We need to go back once in a while, really to the early 1600s, and recognize that up until the early 1600s, when it comes to Europe and what we call Christendom, the basic governing paradigm was this, royal absolutism. And so the king is law. That's it. That was the governing principle, structure of government in Europe right up to the early 1600s. The law, the king is law. Royal absolutism. 1644, one of the divines associated with the Westminster Assembly, a Scotsman, not that important, but it really is, a Scotsman, <laughs> 
He wrote what is known as Lex Rex, meaning what? Law is king. Samuel Rutherford, that's what he wrote. It was a political treatise. Law is king. What did he mean by that? He meant God's law is king. That there is a law and all of us, including human government, are subject to the law of God. It was radical. And in that treatise, he drew out the significant biblical implications. Along came a man just a decade or two later named John Locke. No Christian. He took Lex Rex and he secularized it a wee bit. But he took the conclusions that came out of Samuel Rutherford's writing, his biblical, his theistic worldview, his conclusions, John Locke's, that he shared with Samuel Rutherford are these. Inalienable rights, government by consent, and separation of powers. That was the fountain from which the founding fathers drank. And it was the fountain that produced the U.S. Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We need to think through things historically and understand and acknowledge and never let people forget it in the public sphere. It was a theistic worldview, biblical worldview, that birthed that constitution. A materialistic worldview would never have produced the U.S. Constitution if given a million years in which to do so. We need to understand that. What has happened today, ever since that constitution was ratified, this nation has been stuck between this struggle between a theistic and a humanistic or materialistic worldview. Recently, the materialistic worldview is now in the ascendancy. That's all there is to it. It is now the given position of most people here in the United States of America. That has personal, that has moral, that has legal, that has political ramifications, and that's what we're seeing the evidence of. What we sadly are insisting on doing, many of us, is like a cut artery, a severed artery, sticking a Band-Aid on it. Sadly, that's where many people are engaging things, trying to stick a Band-Aid on a severed artery, not understanding the absolute shift in worldview that has now occurred in this country and understanding that the only answer to that lies where? You see, it is a spiritual problem. It has always been a spiritual problem. It is not something that will be resolved politically. It is something that can only be addressed individually. And so we need to be very clear historically on where we were, how we got to where we now are, and what is happening. And recognize ourselves in this great momentous shift, if you like. And it brings some clarity when it comes to explaining the issues and engaging the issues and holding forth a biblical worldview. That is the greatest deed of the hour right now. It is holding forth and championing a biblical worldview coupled with the gospel, the means by which the Spirit of God will transform the lives of individuals. Oh, we need to think historically. Fifthly, I encourage us to pray, 
regularly. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. We're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Paul tells us. He gives two reasons. The second builds on the first. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Peaceful. What does that mean? The stillness that accompanies restfulness, quiet, restfulness, unmarred by disturbance. And so we are to pray for those in authority over us, those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. But he builds that we may live godly and dignified in every way. That's our chief concern. Our chief concern is that we are equipped, that we might delight in God's glory and declare that glory to the nations. And our prayer must be, our fervent, heartfelt prayer must be acknowledging that all governments ultimately rest in the hand of Almighty God, that we might be granted, yes, the liberty to live a peaceful and quiet life, unmarred by disturbance. That we can live out godly lives, dignified in every way. Remembering the words in Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's our great prayer. Sixth word of encouragement. I encourage us to vote prudently. Yeah, I just said that. I encourage us to vote prudently. I want to glorify God when it comes to the ballot box. You see, we divorce these things, don't we? What's that got to do with glorifying God? God's glory touches everything. And our chief question and chief concern in every sphere in life should be how we answer that question. How does this glorify God? How does this contribute to honoring God? How how does this hallow lead to the hallowing of God's name? And so even when it comes to casting my vote, that's my chief concern, glorifying God. It means voting prudently. To help me vote prudently, I try to answer three questions. Here they are. Does the candidate hold to the U.S. Constitution and the authorial intent behind it? That's a loaded question. Does the candidate hold to the U.S. Constitution? Because ultimately, subjection to the governing authorities in this land is subjection to the U.S. Constitution. Because it's we the people, right? And so I want a candidate who holds to the U.S. Constitution and the authorial intent behind it. The U.S. Constitution has no authority if it is a fluid document. If we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. No, the authors had an original intent. And they were working it out in the context of a theistic worldview. And so I'm looking for a candidate that at the very least holds to that Constitution and its authorial intent. Secondly, does the candidate recognize the government's chief role in punishing evil and rewarding good? That it is a divine institution appointed for that end. It exists for the protection of human life based upon the sanctity of human life. It's the second question I work through. Third question I work through is this. Does the candidate possess the necessary character for holding office? Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles, says the Lord Jesus, exercise lordship over you. Then what does he add? But not so with you. So he introduces a radically different paradigm for leadership and emphasizes the fact that character is of supreme significance. Albert Moeller has written, 
character is indispensable to credibility. And credibility is essential to leadership. We know that character matters when we hire a babysitter. How can it not matter when we are appointing a leader? Character is everything. Those are the three chief questions I work through. I'll just put it out there. As I work through them now, I dismiss half the candidates running. Just my answers are those three. But those are chief. If, I think, if, if I'm going to cast my vote in a way that really honors God, glorifies God, these are the three chief questions I work through and, and try to answer. You see, far too many people, when they vote, the issue is what? What am I going to get out of this? What's in this for me? It's not the issue. The issue is how do I glorify God in this? What will be most honoring to God? And those are three chief questions that I wrestle with. Seventh, finally, we made it. I encourage us to walk worthily. I encourage us to walk worthily. 2016, it's just such a mess. You know, the, the whole thing is such a mess that I've just completely disengaged, and I'm not, I'm not even going to pay any attention. I'm not even sure I'm going to register to vote, let alone vote. Uh, that, that is the, the thinking that a lot of people can fall into, right? I hope the, the, these seven words of encouragement will give us a little, little bit of a paradigm for thinking through it, though, and, and recognizing though, that this is an area in which I can actually honor God. And so this seventh one, finally, very significant. I encourage us to walk worthily. What does that mean? It comes out of Colossians 1.10. Paul prays that we might be filled Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to walk worthily. James Montgomery Boyce wrote the following. In a declining cultural moral environment, the greatest need the greatest need, I'm not saying the only need, but the greatest need is not for more laws or even for greater spiritual sensitivity on the part of unbelievers, but rather for confession of sin and a deep moving of the Spirit of God among God's people. That's the greatest need. I tend to agree with him. I think there are echoes there of that great text in Colossians 1 that we might be filled the knowledge of God's will as revealed in his word, spiritual wisdom and understanding. So yes, comprehension, but also application that the result might be what? That we might walk, that is, we might actually live in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus. And then Paul adds, pleasing him in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God and rejoicing and celebrating with thanksgiving the great redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so this is our calling. It is to live out Christ-like character. It, it, it is to live in such a way that our engagement with society ultimately points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to view life in such a way that whatever I'm doing and however I'm going to come at this, in our context, politics, that my approach to this, my chief concern, my primary end is how does the glory, how is God glorified through Christ reflected in me? 
How is that evident? This thinking actually led John Witherspoon, the only pastor, to sign the Declaration of Independence, Presbyterian, if I remember correctly. He wrote the following. He is the best friend of American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting pure and undefiled religion. I think he was on to something there. It was out of James 1.27. That's what he was quoting. He was saying, look, if we're really interested in this nation, uh, then here, this must be our chief interest. It is the promotion, firstly, in our own lives of pure and undefiled religion. Pure, meaning true, sincere, genuine, undefiled, meaning without moral hypocrisy. When we delight in God's glory, we act out of that delight. And it touches and it shapes every conceivable area of life, even including our political engagement. That's how I keep my sanity. That's how I'm facing 2016. I'm trying to think biblically. Engage meaningfully. Listen carefully. Think historically. Pray regularly. Vote prudently. And above all else, walk worthily. Remembering the admonition of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our God above, we make that our simple prayer this day, that indeed Christ would reign in our hearts in such a measure and to such a degree that our lives would be brought into greater conformity with your word. Our chief concern is your glory. Our chief end is the furtherance of your kingdom. And we pray, our Father, that you might use us. You might use us as salt and light. You might use us as your ambassadors entrusted with a glorious gospel. That you might use us as those who point to the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And in all this, may you be well pleased. We seek it from your hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.